Hello, and welcome to News Underground. My name is Anna, and uh, I am one of our hosts, one of our news correspondents for News Underground. If you don't know, this is a show where we interview a whole bunch of interesting people, um, activists, scientists, just whoever we can we can get our little little radio journalist hands on. And uh, yeah, we have a pretty pretty packed show for you today, a pretty good show. And I am starting with uh, Jasmine Bates and Matteo Vela. Uh, they are here to talk about Los Seis, which is um, it's a well, there's a memorial to Los Seis, uh, who are six Chicanx activists activists who were tragically killed 45 years ago, 1974, in two car bombings. Um, their names, which I hope I don't butcher, uh, but I think they're important to say anyways, are Reyes Martinez, Neva Romero, uh, Una Jacola, Florencia Granado, uh, Herberto Terran, Francisco Doherty, and Antonio Alcantar was also seriously injured and later lost his leg to amputation. Um, very unfortunately. Um, but a lot of people don't know about this event, so hopefully the the memorial that is now up will enlighten some people. So um, could you two start by just restating your names and what your roles have been in the construction of this memorial? Yeah, totally. Um, hi, so my name is Mateo Manuel Vela. I am the UMAS co-chair of the group UMAS y Metro on campus, um, of which those days were um, most of them were part of UMAS. Um, and my role in the sculpture, um, I helped to create parts of the sculpture along with other members of the community. And I also helped um, in the organization of the kickoff event for the memorial sculpture. Great, and uh, my name is Jasmine Bates. Um, I'm a ceramics MFA student in the Department of Art and Art History. And I was the facilitator of the sculpture project um, to commemorate Loses, and uh, I also made little parts of it, and yeah, together a lot of us worked on it. Um, so, UMAS stands for? United Mexican American Students. And MECHA stands for? Uh, MECHA stands for Movimiento Estudiantil Chicanex de Aslan. Great. Thank you for <laughs> telling me again and everyone again. Thank you, <laughs> Mateo. Uh, so, yeah, so this event, um, it's very unknown in the community, very surprisingly in the Boulder community and the CU Boulder community as well. And um, so could you just recap, either of you, in your own words, sort of what happened, what we know happened on that day that the activists passed? Yeah, um, so the car bombings, as you had mentioned before, actually happened on two separate occasions, and they happened over the course of, I believe, 48 hours. Um, so the first sort of bombings took place um, and, you know, just to give a little bit of context about what was happening around that time, you know, we believe that, you know, these bombings were politically motivated. Um, unfortunately, you know, there was never an official investigation of, about what happened, but we do know that at the time, you know, back in the 60s and the 70s, there was um, a lot of like FBI surveillance of different groups such as, you know, um, the Chicano movement and also like, you know, um, the Black Panthers and various other, you know, um, marginalized people who were organizing for their rights at the time. Um, so we know that the first bombings took place, um, I believe that was... The, f the first one was on May 27th. On May 27th, and that one was at... Um, Chautauqua. At yeah. Chautauqua Park, and then the other one took place actually, yeah, 48 hours after that, 
at um, a Burger King that um, is nearby here in Boulder. Um, and, you know, at the time, um, Los Seis, members of Los Seis and members of Umasi Mecha were actually occupying a building on campus here called Temporary Building One that still stands today. It's right next to Sewell Hall and right next to the rec center. Um, and they were organizing at the time, actually, on this campus, um, you know, due to administrative repression. Um, they had been very active on the campus and recruiting um, other Chicanx students, you know, to come here and to, you know, be politically active for their rights. And, um, you know, there, there was some form of retaliation from the administration against that. So, for example, they weren't getting their financial aid packages on time. Um, you know, there was other forms of administrative repression as well. Um, so that was kind of a bit of the context surrounding those two bombings. Mm -hmm. Great. And um, so I know that, uh, Jasmine, you've talked about this in many interviews, and you may be sick of talking of it. I don't know. No, um, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. I'll be sick of talking about it once folks know about it. That's, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, so when did both of you, when did you first hear about Los Seis? Because obviously you two are younger, probably weren't there. Um, so when did you hear about it and when did you really, and it might have been at the same time, but when did you really start to become passionate about getting the story out to other people? Yeah, so the first time that I had ever heard about Los Seis was actually about a year ago over the summer. Um, and the way that I came to know about that history was um, I was a student who was um, a part of this program called Aquetza that um, UMAS actually runs on campus. So they run it every summer, um, usually bring about 50 Chicanx youth from across Colorado to come here and actually learn about the history of Los Seis on this campus, but also just Chicano history more broadly and to learn more about their identities. And, you know, when I heard about it, I was very deeply impacted by it um, because that was actually right before I became a student here. So um, I had like heard brief mentions about that history, but I didn't know the specifics until I actually was a part of that program that was run by UMAS, you know? Um, and it had a very big impact on me just in like, you know, recognizing that history as a Chicano student now on campus um, and, you know, someone who was planning to be involved with Umasi Mecha in, you know, my undergrad here. Yeah, and I, I heard about Losez. Uh, I watched a documentary in my first semester here, so in fall 2017, and um, I've said it before and I'll say it again, but I think if I didn't happen to walk into that documentary screening, I, I don't think um, there would have been another access point uh, in my, I mean, it's hard to say, but uh, I think I very easily could have gone through three years of uh, graduate school here at CU Boulder without finding out about this. And I've talked to plenty of alumni um, from my program and, and others I know who were students here um, who who came and went, doesn't matter if they came here in the 80s, 90s, or more recently, um, this is a history that really isn't uh, well known outside of um, really the community that surrounds Umasi Mecha as they are the literal inheritors of this history um, and this activism. So, uh, that's how I, I heard about it. And as a new student here, I was I was upset to know that this had happened at Boulder, obviously. And I was almost as upset to know that it wasn't marked here on campus. And I thought that was an incredible like and tragic disservice 
to the community who holds this memory and also to everyone here, to the students, to every student here. I, so that, that's a big part of what motivated me um, to work on this project. Very cool. And um, so we are going to have like a tiny, like few second intermission. Uh, there's like a technical issue that I need to sort out, but then we will come right back to this interview. Um, so yeah, just stay tuned for, for one second. Okay, we are back. Um, you may have noticed that there were some difficulties with the sound before. Hopefully that is remedied now. And uh, we're just gonna get right back into it. My next question um, is, this is for both of you. All questions are for both of you. Um, but are you surprised that it took so long for somebody to, to say, you know, hey, we should memorialize what happened here and, and honor these activists? Well, uh, I'll start by saying that this, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not the first person who had a thought to memorialize these activists. Um, but so, so my surprise, um, yeah, I guess, I guess I still am surprised that uh, given, given the importance and you know, like the national importance of this history. These these are six students who were killed in the course of activism, of civil rights activism. So, um, given all of that, yes, I, I I'm surprised that there was nothing. Of course, there was a there was a mural mm -hmm. um, for a time. It was put up in '87 by another uh, MFA student named Pedro Romero, but it was torn down unceremoniously in the 90s or maybe early 2000s when uh, the UMC did a cool reno. So um, so absolutely, I, I'm surprised that there's there hasn't been a permanent um, place to come to to remember these students, surprised in some ways and then not, not in others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I would say I definitely agree with that. I mean, you know, the idea of memorializing Los Seis was not new. There was definitely, you know, for example, the documentary that we made was an attempt to memorialize it. Um, and also, you know, the murals. Um, there are actually two murals that are up in Norland Library right now that make brief mention to Los Seis and to that history. But the difference now being that with this sculpture, there is an actual physical, very bold sort of you know, recognition of that legacy and of their contributions to this campus and to Chicano history. Um, and I would say that um, I'm not necessarily surprised that, um, you know, that it's taken this long. And the reason I say that is just because of the circumstances of their deaths of like, you know, they were very politically active and it was for that reason that, you know, they were killed. And it is for that same reason that, you know, they're legacies now are being erased very similarly to how other marginalized people's legacies have been erased. So in that same way, you know, I, um, I'm not surprised. Um, and I'm also very grateful as well, though, to the fact that now we get to memorialize them in a way that seems a lot more fitting, um, in a way that more people can understand. And, you know, I'm very, um, I've always like really believed in like our community and like our ability to come together and create this and, you know, honor the people who have passed. Um, so in that way, I'm not surprised by our efforts. Yeah, and I think, I do think it's important to, to acknowledge the people who have made those efforts to memorialize in the past. So that's a good thing to bring up. Um, and as far as this 
this fixture, this memorial in front of Sewell, is it, do you know whether or not it's, it's more permanent or is it also uh, a temporary memorial? Right, so it's in front of temporary building one, which is one of our oldest buildings on campus and not temporary at all. So um, if people are in a good mood, I just like to crack the joke that everyone says to me that hopefully it will be as temporary as temporary building one. Um, so, but really, so right now we do have um, six, a six month authorization uh, for the sculpture, which I just found out this morning. Uh, the clock started on September 6th, so we got a little bit more time than I thought. Okay. So yeah, you know, the grounds are shifting, folks are talking about it for sure. Um, and yeah, hopefully with um, just sort of the codifying of a, a way for public art to be proposed and installed on campus, I, we're, uh, we're super hopeful that it will stay in place. We constructed it so it could theoretically be um, disassembled, but so that it was with the appropriate uh, sort of materials and craft that it, um, you know, it could certainly outlast the building behind it, so. Great, and um, yeah, I certainly hope that it's permanent too. Um, I think it's important for people to know, not just for six months, but for, you know, the rest of Boulder's history, so good luck with that. Um, and. My last question to you um, is that in the Colorado Arts and Sciences magazine, Jasmine, you pointed out that um, Kent State, the Kent State victims in 1970, they've been very widely memorialized, right? Um, people, everybody knows when you say Kent State, they think of that. And it's not the same culture that surrounds Los Seis. It's not the same uh, like household name, really. And do you have any and um, you touched on it a little bit, but do you have any ideas as to, uh, to as to why that may be, why there's that difference? Give it <laughs> um, I mean, I would say that, you know, Boulder is a very like insulated sort of environment and, you know, historically has been like a more privileged environment. Um, and the people who have gotten to come here have mostly come from those sort of backgrounds of privilege, whether that's like racial or economic privilege. And, you know, what this university chooses to memorialize is directly tied to those values of those cultures. So, um, and you know, when you have like that sort of dominant power, you're able to kind of just overlook other people and even erase their histories. So I would say that would be my best guess as to why, you know, they haven't been memorialized in that fashion though. I will say that like, um, I heard the other day that people who go to Kent State um, actually have to take a class about um, what happened there and about that history. And, you know, they're definitely a model of like what I would like to see on this campus as far as like raising awareness and, you know, being very, um, I would say, intentional about how we want to like recognize that legacy in a way that's more tangible. Mm -hmm. I have nothing to add. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a great answer. Um, and uh, right before I let you go, and I will because it's very hot in this room uh, <laughs> for people listening, but um, is there just, is there anything else you would like to say about the memorial, about the history, anything else that you would like our audience to, to know? Um, I, I just want to reiterate my thanks as always to everyone who has helped in visible and in, invisible ways for this project and 
And yeah, and just say their names again, Neva Romero, Reyes Martinez, Yuna Jacola, uh, Florencio Granado, Francisco Dordi, and Heriberto Terran, and Antonio Alcantar, who was wounded. We, you know, I don't think we're going to forget them anymore. Yeah, um, I guess the only thing I would add to that is just, you know, like Umasi Mecha is still on campus, and there are other student groups who are still here kind of carrying that legacy. And, you know, it is very important for us to memorialize um, Los Seis, but really, you know, to give back to that spirit that's like kind of let, you know, led us this far. And, you know, I wouldn't be here without Los Seis, and I wouldn't be here without all the people who, you know, fought for me to have an education. So I guess I would just add, like, you know, get involved if you can. Like, you know, we have meetings every Friday, 5 p.m. Um, in the UMC, um, fourth floor. So, good you know, food. come through. Yes, good food, always. Um, and yeah, just get involved, and I hope to see you all on campus. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you two so much. Thank you. So we now are going to, uh, before I bring in our next guests, we are going to play a pre-recorded interview that I did earlier this week with uh, Professor Max Boykoff. He is an environmental studies professor at CU who also does a ton of research on the environment, including its relationship to the media and how the media covers uh, issues of environment and climate change. And uh, after that, if you stay tuned in, I will be interviewing Lindy Raymond uh, about her BFA project, Virtue of Reality. So if you want to know what that is, what that's all about, then uh, stay tuned. Thanks. My name is Max Boykoff. I'm an associate professor in environmental studies here at CU Boulder. I'm also the director of the Center for Science and Technology Policy Research, which is one of four centers which sits in the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences. And um, so I want to talk a little bit, I want to start by talking about sort of uh, climate change and how it's been covered in media, um, which is something that I know that you look into a little bit. Um, so for example, CNN, uh, they recently hosted, I think, 10 back-to-back -to -back town halls with 10 presidential candidates about climate change. It was like seven hours, which is very impressive, I think, uh, I believe that's a lot more than they've covered in past years on oh, climate yeah. change. Um, there is also a climate forum September 19th to 20th that MSNBC is hosting, mm -hmm. which uh, to me seems, you know, reassuring, but do you get the impression that news, news organizations um, are beginning to take climate change as, as seriously as they should? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of great questions in there. I, um, I wrote a book in 2011 that focused in on media coverage of climate change. And there is a group that I'm a part of called the Media and Climate Change Observatory that's based here at CU. And there are 18 of us involved in, that also includes six other universities. And basically, we, mo we monitor coverage of climate change and global warming now in 96 sources across, I think it's 43 countries and newspaper, television, and radio. And, you know, that's just, that's just to get our finger on the pulse, if you will, of the ebbs and flows of coverage. We found that coverage has really been going up in recent years. There is this notion of a Trump dump, I suppose you could say, that is that when Trump has anything to say about climate or environment, whether it is rollbacks of certain legislation, that it garners 
increased coverage of climate change in the U.S. news more than it has uh, with previous presidents and over the past years. We've been monitoring this largely since 2004 around the world, but have tracked back, say, in the United States back to January 2000. Mm-hmm. question around content of coverage can sometimes be a little bit different. Um, there are these well-worn paths of talking about climate change through a perspective on what science can tell us, how we learn about climate change based on parts per million in the atmosphere or the rate of ice melt um, or the rate of sea level rise, for instance, or even some of the extreme events like we've seen with Hurricane Dorian. The question to what extent is climate change a threat multiplier in that instance? These are, you know, these are very logical ways of approaching these kinds of issues. However, there still are many other themes that are really important to take up, such as political framing, economic framing, cultural dimensions, uh, ecological or meteorological dimensions too, on top of the science itself. And so really the new book that I have out is calling for, yes, continued support of the sciences to understand this, but then expanding out the ways in which we can come to discuss productively, learn and know about, and then ultimately take action in the face of this 21st century challenge. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so your, your new book, it is called um, Creative Climate Communications, Productive Pathways for Science, Policy, and Society. Um, could you talk just a little bit more about, um, and you touched on it a little, but could you talk more about sort of what inspired you to, to write it and why you think that it was important to to put out into the world yeah well I mean like I said the the book I wrote before was about media coverage of climate change and this book pivots into those other ways of communicating about climate change and in some ways it's not just talking at people about it in these new dimensions it's actually having dialogues listening to other points of view and I, I feel like that leading up to at the time is really good for this to be coming out because there is increased attention. You mentioned the CNN town hall and seven hours of coverage on climate change is off the charts compared to maybe the, depending on how you measured it, six to 13 minutes within each of the climate, general climate debates that preceded it. The MSNBC plans for forum are also really helping to raise attention to these critical issues. But we still remain in a heavily partisan and polarized space. And so that's where my argument of the book uh, really I, is part of the motivation that I, that I had for writing it. There's a lot of great social sciences and humanities scholarship that looks at what works, how, when, why, under what circumstances, and with what audiences when communicating about climate change. And oftentimes it really still remains fragmented within the literature and it in certain case studies and under certain conditions. So I wrote the book and took this opportunity to pull it together and provide a handbook or a guide about what this really amounts to. And so my motivation for writing the book was to then help people who want to improve these conversations, whether just in quantity but also in quality, can look to this and say, okay, it doesn't work to just freak people out and expect them to then act in the face of total, uh, you know, fear. 
that there are other ways in which it's important that social sciences and humanities research have shown that you can make them aware of the issue, but then also empowering them to take action in the face of those challenges have proven to be very important. So ultimately the book then be has become a demonstration. It includes some of the research I've been doing now for almost 20 years uh, that, that shows that there is no silver bullet that's going to turn the tide on this, it's going to overcome polarization, find some space of love and harmony, but rather there's, it's silver buckshot. It takes a lot of different people committed to talking about this with their communities uh, through, through pathways of trust and really listening as a way to then move towards concerted and constructive action. Yeah, so um, sort of going off of that as far as being able to communicate uh, issues of climate change to a general public who may not want to listen to um, like dr drolling speeches and you know uh, reports and things like that. Um, you have mentioned that uh, among other things humor is one way in which we could do that in which we could communicate uh, to an audience that would actually want to hear it. Um, among other things, just like like artistic methods and just more, I guess, creative ways to, to communicate climate change. So um, how, would you, how would you go about that, I guess? Like what, does, what do broadcasts about climate change and articles sort of look like under that framework? Definitely great questions. Mm -hmm. So I have researched this for a long time myself, and we're here at Sea Wilder, and I'm, I feel really blessed about that, that I'm not just analyzing what works and experimenting um, in the laboratory per se, but we're actually, I'm involved in a group that's called Inside the Greenhouse on campus, where I've partnered with Phaedra Pizzullo, who's an associate professor in communications, with Beth Osnes, who's an associate professor in theater and dance, and with Rebecca Safran, who's an associate professor in ecology and evolutionary biology, where we have this integrated space of working with students in our classes. They're largely upper division undergraduate courses right now, and holding events, and then utilizing our research prowess to methodically understand what's working, what kinds of new pathways are creating uh, opportunities for more productive engagement. And so you mentioned the comedy and humor. Uh, Beth Osnes and I in particular have been working on this now for the last four years with a class that um, is here at CU. On day one we tell them that within a certain number of weeks they're going to be up on stage at Old Main and delivering either a stand-up act or part of a skit that brings humor into discussions of climate change. And it can freak them out. I mean it's it is uh, it's something that would have freaked me out as a student as well. Mm -hmm. But we actually tether the ways in which they have to then constructively create a humorous skit or stand-up to a book called Drawdown Solutions, which has um, been very useful. And so they address issues like uh, plastic straws at the individual level, um, other individual level things, but then not, they don't limit themselves there. They talk about larger scale sets of considerations and how this is a collective action problem. And what we found as we've then analyzed this is that uh, it actually has really helped to lower defenses. It's helped to overcome some of the left-right politics that pervade this issue. And it has opened people up to thinking about these issues in new ways and has engaged audiences that otherwise 
might be kind of tired, as you say, of just kind of reading the, the doom and gloom through the news all the time. And so students come away empowered. Audience members who have been there have reported, as we've done through survey work, have found to be empowered. And this work then fits into an emergent sort of subfield within the social sciences of looking at humor, looking at humor and climate change mainly on television, looking at it through the Onion newspaper, for instance, and all these other ways. We do it through live performance, but it's proven to be a really good way of opening up a new pathway. And when you ask that question, I mean, the scientific pathway, again, is useful, but I'm talking about emotional pathways to knowing about this, experiential pathways to knowing about it, even visceral the kinds of things that makes your hair stand on end. Aesthetic pathways through the arts, as you mentioned, are important ways to better understanding a changing climate around us that don't require you to be well-versed in the sciences. You, it then empowers people, everyday people, from all walks of life to feel as though they can engage meaningfully on climate change. So, yeah, that runs kind of, I think, just the encouragement and the empowering people runs I would say counter to uh, what a lot of people would call fear-mongering. I think there's a big debate about that, whether calling climate change discussions fear-mongering is a like a right-wing sort of anti-climate change talking point or whether that is a genuine concern um, where you know if people are in fear then they feel like they can't do anything about it. So I've heard like many arguments on on both sides of that spectrum. So what do you think that fear-mongering is always, I guess, a bad thing in in the sense that is it bad to like, like how do we inform people about the gravity of a situation without um, being accused of fear-mongering or making people feel hopeless, basically? Yeah, well, I mean, I, what I can't say right here is that the debate as you describe it really isn't so much of a debate. And maybe I can provide a little bit of texture to that. Um, it has been shown that if you talk about the gravity of the situation, if you provide research that shows, say, unprecedented increases in temperature and heat waves and uh, these sorts of things, that it raises people's awareness. So there is a value there. But if you just stop there, there there's a great deal of research that consistently points to the fact that it paralyzes people. It feels like they're, they, they feel alienated. They feel like there's nothing they can do and they should just throw up their hands, right? So that important connection is that in the face of, of helping make people aware that this is a critical 21st century challenge that weaves through a variety of other pertinent issues, you have to then take the next step and talk about efficacy, talk about what people are empowered to do. And the good news there is that we have choices, you know, throughout the every day of our lives to be influencing this from the food on our plates, that there is a new report that came out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a United Nations panel, about how the food that we eat certainly is a, is a contributor to climate change. If we eat higher up the food chain, it has more of a climate impact. So changing your food habits is something that everybody is capable of doing. You can think about ways in which you get to the university. You can think about uh, a variety of, of ways in which you can change your behavior. Now, th- when I talk about, though, how you get to the university, there are important political economic dimensions here that ought not be overlooked. This isn't just about a cultural shift and a new way of thinking. 
that many people, you know, we have thir anywhere from 30 to 50,000 vehicles coming in and out of Boulder every day. And that's not just because people love to drive in and out of Boulder and like to be in traffic. It's because they can't afford to live here. And so when you look at something like an affordable housing crisis for students, even for staff and faculty, and then the commute times that are involved and all the CO2 emissions embedded in that, you're looking at affordable housing, which becomes a climate change issue. And so some people are committed to this just by simple economics. And so this, is, this complicates things, yet I still want to say that fear-mongering only gets you so far. And if you stop in that place, I've heard arguments that fear-mongering can then uh, get people off their butts and take action. There isn't social science and humanities scholarship to support that. Those are hunches that remain unfounded. There's a book called The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells, who, and he makes that very argument. And I'm sorry to say, but there isn't much of a debate. There is not uh, significant social science or humanities scholarship that, that supports the notion that that is going to inspire action. So if one's motivation is to raise awareness uh, great. If one's objective is to raise their profile in the public arena by having written something like that, that's fine. But if one's objective is actually to inspire people to take action and confront this critical 21st century challenge, we need to move through fear-mongering into these places of empowerment, into these places of understanding that climate change is here and now, and into these spaces of finding common ground to address it. Yeah, that's well said. And um, do, you, do you have anything else that you would like our audience to know just about the work you do or about um, sort of anything else about how we may communicate climate change or how we should be talking about it um, or where people can find you if they want to ask you more questions about this topic? Sure. I'm here on campus. I'm, I'm happy to talk about this. I mean, I will give another shout out to Inside the Greenhouse. I think along with my three colleagues who I mentioned, I think that we're doing uh, some important work that students that we've worked with so far have felt really um, inspired and excited about about the creativity that's involved in these communications. I could say a ton more about that, but what I can say is that being at CU Boulder, there are a lot of people that are committed to improving our communications on climate change. And so there's going to be a lot of uh, exciting events and activities coming up in the next months um, that I'd be happy to share with you as, as we go along. And, and I'd also encourage folks to, when you look at our Inside the Greenhouse site, check out the courses that are offered, because uh, Rebecca Saffron, for instance, in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology is teaching an advertising and climate change course right now, which is fascinating. Uh, Professor Phaedra Pizzullo has written the textbook on environmental communication in the public sphere. So she teaches a lot of environmental communications courses, which are great. Beth Osnes teaches a lot of fun. She teaches a creative climate communication class in the spring. She and I teach it together um, about every other year. But we'd love to interact with more and more students, and um, we hope that uh, this book, you know, I'm just skimming the surface, that this book people want to pick it up and read it can inspire people to really get engaged because uh, we need more people that are going to be involved in these creative spaces. Okay, thank you so much. And hello, I am back. Welcome to News Underground. Uh, the 
kind man that you were just listening to is Professor Max Boykoff. Uh, he is an environmental studies professor and does a whole lot of other stuff, as you just heard. And um, I also apologize for the temporary cutout of sound halfway through that interview. We will have the full interview on our SoundCloud, so you can listen to it without that. Um, we've been having some sound issues. It's like I've been saying, it's it's college radio, folks. So uh, our next and final interviewees for tonight are um, Lindy Raymond, Adriana Hippel, and Veronica Rodriguez. And they are here to talk about their immersive theater show, Virtue of Reality. So could you start by stating your names and your role in making Virtue of Reality a reality? Hi, thank you for having us here. It's exciting to be in college radio. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, yeah, um, Virtue of Reality is going to be in the Carlson Gym the 20th, 21, and 22nd of uh, this month. So you should get your tickets. And um, yeah, it's the cohort of the new MFA program uh, in experience design, and this is our thesis project. My name is Veronica Rodriguez, and uh, I am the theater director for this, uh, this piece, and also did a lot of the scripting for the show. Uh, and uh, audience um, managing where um, uh, the audience are gonna go because it's a full open world experience, meaning that people can walk in and interact with all the actors, they can interact with the space, they interact with the technology. Uh, my name is Lindy Raymond and I've been helping out on this project, uh, kind of keeping it rolling on the project management side. Um, we kind of all sat down in the beginning and plotted out what we wanted to be and came up with a bunch of different ideas. So I'm just kind of making sure that everybody is staying on top of all those things and that those things are happening. And uh, so far, so good. Hi, I'm Adriana. Um, as we said, it's been a group effort, but I've definitely been focusing more on the design side as far as the floor plan and the design as to the aesthetic of what each room's gonna be like and the props, but it's definitely been pretty collaborative. As she mentioned, each room is gonna be like because we have the Carlson Gym, but it's divided into four different worlds. And four different worlds that are gonna be completely exploratory by the guests. So what guests have to expect that they're gonna uh, walk around, but they can choose the level of participation they want to have. Very cool. And um, so as you mentioned, this is part of your thesis for uh, the MFA in experience design. And I would love if you could just, because um, I know at CU it's sort of a new thing, experience design. So if you could just talk a little bit about uh, what that entails, what that is. Sure. So um, yeah, it's a new program. We're the first cohort that's going to be, we'll be graduating this year. Um, so we're kind of the new kids on the block. The program's being run through the theater and dance department, which is awesome. Um, I was kind of surprised to hear that when I first enrolled, because I don't know, I think I assumed it would be through um, the arts or, uh, um, but anyway, total uh, dance and theater makes sense because it's kind of coming out of a set design realm. And that kind of is what experience design is. It's uh, designing these spaces that um, 
allow guests or users or audience or just general public to kind of walk through a story and walk through a themed space or design space that's been intentionally designed to um, communicate something specific. So that's what experience design is. And it can be anything from theme parks to museums and restaurants, retail design, um, immersive theater, uh, uh, visual art. Um, Interactive performance. Yeah, a lot of different things. So it's exciting. And we're kind of all coming at it from different backgrounds too. Like uh, Adriana has more of a interior design background. Veronica's coming more from a performative background. I come from a marketing and branding background. So it's a really cool place for us to all kind of come together and create cool stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very cool. It is cool stuff. Um, and so yeah, part of your thesis project is a pretty different take on not virtual reality, but like artificial maybe reality. Um, but can you describe, and you have already, um, but can you describe sort of, I guess, what audiences should expect first and foremost from this experience? Well, um, it's really important for us to um, clarify that it's not a virtual reality experience. It's a physical thing, and it's a physical space that people are going to walk through. Uh, the VR part of the experience is just a portal into that magical world that we are uh, proposing to people. So if you are not into VR, or if you are, we're sorry, but it's not uh, based on virtual uh, virtual reality. It's just a small part of it. Of it, you know, we want to show a little bit the technology, but it's mainly uh, storytelling through design, because we wanted to design a space that was uh, very playful, but also me coming from performance, um, from a performance background, also love immersive uh, theater, and I've been doing it uh, for a long time since 2006 and putting on my own show since 2013. So we thought it would be a disservice not to use the skills that I have, the skills that Adriana and Camila have in interior design, the skills that uh, Lindy has with her theme park and her tiki um, <laughs> obsession, I may say. I love tiki bars. <laughs> so yeah, we're just kind of putting everybody's best skills in, in the table. Also, we have Erin um, Carlson, who did, is, she's doing all the technology for the show, all the um, pieces that people are gonna be interacting with. So uh, we thought we just wanna put all our skills in the table and show what we could, um, you know, show people um, how all this can be in one space and can tell one story in a very rich way. But back to what you were saying about um, what an audience member can expect going through the show. Oh, um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to get distracted. Um, <laughs> there's so much to talk about. We're very excited about it. But um, uh, it's an immersive theater show, and a lot of people don't know what that is, but um, the main thing I always say is that you, an audience member should show up not expecting to sit in a chair and watch a stage. Um, they're going to come to the experience, and they're going to become a part of the story. They're going to interact with the inhabitants of the world, the actors. They're going to um, walk through the set. They're going to be able to touch uh, and play with different interactive things. I don't want to give too much away, but there's a lot of um, really cool kind of tech components, like she, like Veronica was saying, um, that I think are going to be kind of magical. So yeah. yeah. Guests should just come with an open mind totally. and be super excited to try new things. 
Yeah, but also nobody, like, if you're afraid to be put on the spot, you don't have to. You can just, like, walk around and see what's happening without really having to interact too much. Nobody's going to be, it's not like a clown show. Nobody's going to be put <laughs> in the spot. Like, do this, do that. No, none of that. And it, everybody can participate uh, as much as they want or as little as they want. Cool. And um, so you're also working with a, a massive conglomerate corporation called <laughs> VeraRev on this project, which is crazy that they're so massive. I've never heard of them. Um, so that's crazy. But what kind of work, what kind of, I'm very curious on what kind of work they do and uh, what part they're playing in this project. Yeah. So <laughs> VeraRev is, uh, like you said, multi-conglomerate, massive company. Um, uh, they're they're a fictional company we're making up for this show, but they nice. <laughs> they um they're kind of the host of the experience, so they're uh, welcoming their stakeholders to a preview of the future, and they are uh, creators of nutritional health, of technology, of um, mental health. Uh, you know they they do it all. They are Amazon and Apple and Google <laughs> and everything in one. So um, it's part of the theme of our show. We want people to, um, I don't know, be more mindful of the way they consume and uh, what companies they support. So it's kind of like a symbolic company that we have created that represents all um, L different things that are uh, going to happen in the future if things, oh, we foresee, we, we made different stories up of uh, things that are actually happening right now in the world, and that was a topic that um, preoccupied us, and the environment, and all sort of things, and the people who are doing, um, not being conscious of the environment are people that you can stop supporting as well. You don't need to support people that do that, uh, you know, that are not consciously with the, um, with the environment, that are not conscious to people and people's times. So it's a little bit of all those topics uh, are concentrated into one company that represents them all. Science fiction. <laughs> ah, yeah, it's very sci-fi. Very cool. And um, so where did, can you just talk a little bit more about where the initial idea for this project came up for the format itself and also just for, I guess, the themes and just the whole shebang. So originally we had a concept based off of a story that was suggested to us from a teacher and none of us really felt a connection to it. So we kind of rerouted our direction to something more relevant, something we're kind of all interested in. And we wanted it to have a meaning and we wanted the guests to think about something and get something out of it rather than just walking through a cool space. So we came up with the idea of like things that were wrong with the world and things that we could see happening in the future and ways to get people to think and like act on their actions and be more conscious of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Okay, any more any more input on that or are we good? If not, it's okay. Uh, I feel yeah. like we should also add we uh from the theater and dance department, the reason we're able to make this show happen is we were granted this pretty big um, chunk of money from an, uh, a patron of the arts and alum of CU, Ro Green. And so um, it's kind of thanks to her that we even have the chance to do this. Um, 
So I, I just wanted to say thanks, Ro Green. Uh, Ro Green, we love you, yeah. and we are so happy that you're gonna come and see our show. <laughs> that's a good that's a good add-on. And um, also, oh, I just wanted to add like even though it has some heavy subjects, is uh, we want people to have fun yeah. and to enjoy the experience and uh, just come with no expectations, just with an open mind to interact with the people there. The actors are doing a, such a great job. Uh, a lot of them have never done immersive theater before, so it's a really uh, good um, chance that um, the department has let us do this because now they have that experience and it's a way of doing theater that is more and more popular now and um, that it hadn't been done that much here in the theater department, this kind of theater. Uh, so it is beautiful to give this experience also to the students from the theater department and they're, they're doing such a great job. I'm very happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Again, it's very hot in this room. So hot. <laughs> it's really getting I to my brain. I prefer so I love it. I'm like, back home, there's a palm tree here. Yeah, exactly. There is a palm tree in the corner. It has a fake bird. Um, it's very decorative. Um, so, yes, yeah, so Virtue of Reality is going to be showing um, on September, from September 20th to 22nd in the Carlson Gymnasium. Entry is free, correct? Yeah, yeah. entry is free, but you do need to um, register for a ticket and a time slot. Uh, we have our tickets up on Eventbrite, so if you search Virtue of Reality, we should come up. Um, We're really limited on Friday night tickets, so Saturday and Sunday uh, might be your best bet, or if you want Friday, hurry up. And also, something about the portal to get the tickets in Eventbrite, it says that it's sold out. It's not sold out. Every slot is only four tickets because only four people come in every 10 minutes because people go through the portal of the VR experience. So um, it's not sold out. You just have to search through. I know, we just, we just couldn't <laughs> find another portal that worked better. So you just, just have to look through and you'll find a ticket. Okay. Very cool. That's also that's a good thing to add. So yeah, because a lot of people, oh, I want to go, but it's sold out. No, it's not. Good. I'm glad. But Friday is almost. Okay. Also good to know. Um, so yeah, that's all I have for you. Um, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, thank you for you. having us. Yeah, of course. And um, yeah, so for my dear listeners, um, we are going to sign off there. Um, it's been a great show. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Uh, Max Boykoff, who I interviewed uh, prior, will speak about and sign his new book, Creative Climate Communications, Productive Pathways for Science, Policy, and Society, tonight at 7.30 p.m. at the Boulder Bookstore. So if you're not doing anything half an hour from now, um, then you can totally head over to the Boulder Bookstore and, and check his stuff out. And uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks again to everybody that I've spoken to, and uh, I will see you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>